Good evening, everybody. Thrilled that you're here, whether you're here on site, whether you're online with us, we're thrilled that you've joined us. Uh, we do have a special treat tonight, tomorrow night, uh, Tuesday night, Wednesday night. Uh, Brent Avery is going to be with us. Brent uh, spoke this morning. If you missed this morning's message, would in invite, would encourage you to go out online and watch that again. Uh, you, or you can watch it for the first time if you missed us, uh, or if you... Um, you just want to listen to it again, you can as well. So I'm uh, thrilled, uh, thrilled that he's been here with us uh, this morning and that he's going to get to be here with us this week and just hope that you'll open your hearts, open your minds to what the Holy Spirit might want to say to you, to us, uh, through, uh, through Scripture and through Brent uh, during this window of time. Uh, we're going to be talking about, his theme is uh, Thy Kingdom Come, uh, a phrase that is familiar uh, to all of us. If you go back to, to the, the Lord's Prayer, uh, you know, the Lord teaches us to pray, you know, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And um, I think by the time we get to the end of this, that's going to have a much fuller, um, you'll have a much more well-formed idea of what Jesus was saying to pray for. Uh, he is talking about character. He's talking about a lot of things, but Hopefully that'll all, uh, that'll all crystallize in our heads. So let's bow our heads together, and then Brent's going to uh, start. And then when Brent ends, we'll uh, have time afterwards every time to, to pray for anybody that has something they need to be uh, uh, prayed for. Uh, if you're listening online, you can email us at pastors at southwoods.org and uh, let us know. We can respond to whatever you have need of, pray for whatever there as well. But uh, we do want to have opportunity to pray for anybody that has needs tonight as well. So just kind of file that away in the back of your mind. We have note cards. Hope you grab one of those. If you missed one, as soon as I pray, just after I've prayed, raise your hand, and we'll make sure to get them to you. Uh, if you're missing a pen, uh, let us know. We can get that to you too, okay? Let's bow our heads and pray, and then Brent will start. Father, thankful for uh, the opportunity to uh, look at your word tonight. And thank you for your servant, Brent, and for uh, the privilege we have just to enjoy uh, what you have to say to us tonight through him. Pray that you'd give us ears to hear and hearts to receive the word that you have from us, from Scripture and from, uh, from your servant. So, so grateful, grateful for your presence and your faithfulness. We dedicate this time to you, Lord, now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Brent, join us. All right. Okay, good. I'm on. I wasn't sure we'd been to mic check. Well, good evening, everybody. How many of you, were all of you here this morning? You are some serious prayer warriors because someone went home and prayed, Lord God, bring the rain. And apparently you prayed so well that it may just uh, cause the, the Chiefs game to be delayed long enough that you may end up getting home in time to see the whole game. So, I mean, way to go. When you pray for the rain, the Lord listens. That's, a, that's absolutely amazing. Well, I, I am so excited uh, to bring this series of messages to you. Uh, it, it's really going to be the culmination of many, many years of things that the Lord has been trying to uh, teach me. Sometimes he had to try a little harder uh, because we all grow up with baggage. I, I kind of shared that with you this morning when I went to Israel in 1990. I had a lot of baggage. There were things that I thought about Bible prophecy, about the role of Israel and the nations, that uh, I had to go home and begin a process of retooling and allowing the Lord to uh, take me through a process uh, where he would begin to show me uh, where things that I had missed. 
And uh, I really appreciated the uh, man who led us on that first tour because one of the things that he said repeatedly, and it, well, I don't think it was necessarily original with him, was he said, if the plain sense makes sense, don't look for any other sense or you'll end up with nonsense. And so that's kind of become part of my hermeneutic. I try to let the scripture say what the scripture says and where I find myself, and I have caught myself uh, from time to time, um, going back and spiritualizing things that should have maybe not been spiritualized. They should have been understood literally. But anyway, we're going to be talking about the kingdom of God. And I know, let me just, as a show of hands, how many of you have questions about the kingdom of God? As I said this morning, the kingdom of God for me growing up was really nothing more than terminology. And in reality, the kingdom of God was nothing more than a synonym for the church. I didn't have any expectation of a future kingdom here on earth. And, and we're going to get into all of those different views. And, and, and I'm going to try to show you why just taking the plain sense meaning of the text is the best way to interpret and understand the scripture. But tonight, I want to just... The, the title of tonight's message is, is simply this. It's the Kingdom Proclamation. I want us to take a journey through Scripture and just take note of how the Bible declares the Kingdom of God. Because it's a fascinating journey, and believe me, we are barely scratching the surface tonight uh, in how we're going to do this. And most of it is we're not going to deal with a lot of Old Testament Scripture tonight but a lot of this is going to come from the New Testament. But here's, here's what I want to ask you to do. First of all, pray, bring the rain. Whatever that means in your life, the rains of God's control, the rain of his provisions, you know, doing something new in your heart and life, the rain of his kingship, his lordship, and the manifestation of his power. Whatever that is for you, Lord, bring that. But I would also ask you to come objectively and honestly understanding that none of us come to this subject without the baggage of many years behind us of things that we, and not all that baggage is wrong or bad, but the most objective thing you can say is this, I'm not objective, and admit that. And so tonight I want to ask you to ask the Lord for you to be objective. Over the course of the next few nights, you may hear something that is different than what you've heard before. And that's okay. Even if it makes you go back. I, I said something in a church uh, one Sunday in, in Ohio years ago, and it really agitated an older lady. And it was back when we did Sunday night services. And so I went back to supply preach that night. And she came up to me and she said, I went home. And I spent three hours studying my Bible to prove me wrong. And I just stuck my hand out. She goes, what are you doing? I said, if my sermon caused you to spend three more hours studying the Word of God, you owe me a tip. <laughs> so if you hear something that, that rubs you or you've got questions about, that's okay. One of the things I, I hope to do is to give you some time for some Q&A. All right, I don't know that we'll have a lot of that tonight. But before we dive in, will you just allow me to share in prayer with you? Oh, Abba Father, we come to you in the mighty name of Yeshua, Jesus, the Lord, our Savior, the great salvation. And God, I thank you for these people who have taken time 
out of their uh, day just to be here. And I do pray, Father, that you would bring the rain, that you would provide for our spirits, for our minds, for our flesh and our spirit, that which we need. Lord, help us to understand what you are saying to this generation about your coming kingdom. I pray this in Yeshua's name and you will get all the glory. Amen. So I'll try to be very clear with my points tonight uh, so that if you're taking notes, uh, we're going to be looking at, I think, three or four different main points as we look at how the kingdom proclamation unfolds in Scripture. So the first thing I want to talk with you tonight about is simply this. I'm just going to call it patterns of the kingdom. Patterns of the kingdom. Now, let me just ask a quick question, and this one may throw you a little bit. But what does mathematics and discipleship have to do with each other? Now, if you're a person who loves math, you, you, you perk up like, oh, man, I want to hear this. If you're a person like me who hates math, you're like, oh, no, not math. You know, do I have some fellow people like that? You know, I have a philosophy in life that nobody that ever made more than a C in their algebra class should be allowed to teach it. Because the rest of us non-mathematical people just like, I don't understand. I love this relationship between mathematics and discipleship because they actually have a lot to do with each other. The, the Greek word, they both come from the same Greek word, manthano, which means to learn. Mathematikos literally means related to learning. And the Greek word for disciple is mathaton. A disciple... The whole concept of being a disciple is one who adds to their learning. And so I we had an algebra teacher who was a member of the church we used to serve, and she loved this concept, you know, because anything that related to math. You're thinking, wow, Brent, uh, could you come up with a more boring way to introduce a topic, you know, than math? But kingdom disciples, as kingdom disciples... You're going to have to learn some math tonight. As one of the patterns that God uses to bring our attention to the kingdom. So I want to teach you just two kingdom equations to start off with tonight. The first kingdom equation is what I call uh, the creation equation. And it's simply this. It is, and everybody just put your hands up in the air. Do this. One becomes two so it can become one again. This is the pattern that we see introduced in Scripture. And, and I want to go back to Genesis chapter 1. And we're not going to just exegete a whole lot here. But just if you remember that one of the first things that God says in verse 9, he says, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. Uh, let me go back a verse um, where God actually, he says, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate waters from waters. One of the first things that God does in the process of creation is he takes the heavenly waters and he separates them into the upper and lower waters. Now, what's really cool about this, and you can hear my voice is really raspy, so I'm going to be doing a lot of this. I'm going to be drinking a lot of Mayim. Everybody say Mayim. It's a Hebrew word for water. The Hebrew word for heaven is Shemayim. So what do you think heaven is? Water. In fact, Shemayim can be translated as there is water. Remember the Ethiopian eunuch? What 
hinders me from being baptized. Shemayim, there's water. So whenever we think about heaven, we're thinking about the heavenly waters. And one of the first things that God does is he divides the, the heavenly waters uh, from the earth, lower waters. Then you see the division of the day. And the Bible says there was evening and there was morning one day. Here's the thing I want you to understand. The, probably the clearest aspect of this creation equation is this. What did God say in Genesis chapter 3? It is not good for a man to be alone. What did God do? He took from the side of Adam, one, and Adam, what happened? Became two. And what was the destiny? That they would become one. This is a mathematical equation. And, and why I'm sharing this, and this is going to become more relevant as we go through uh, the, the study, when we start thinking about the kingdom, God is going to follow this pattern. And that which was originally and essentially one and became two is someday going to be one again. He separates the heavens from the, the heavenly waters from the earthly waters. And then what do you have? You have heaven and you have earth. One became two. And what is its destiny? To become one again. And when you begin to understand that, you're going to begin to see that. I'm going to show you that again, not only in the, in the physical creation and not only in the creation of humanity, but we're going to look at it in the, even in the kingdom of Israel. Now, the second equation I want to talk to you about, and this one is uh, just more for kicks and giggles. I call it one from three, and it's not subtraction. It's that, that from three comes one. I love it when we go to the Golan Heights and we're, we go to a place where we see the three headwaters, the, the Dan, the Hatsbani, and the, um, hmm, lost it there, the Dan, the Hatsbani, and the uh, Banyas. And from these three headwaters, they come together and they make the Jordan River. This is what I mean from three, one. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. From three, one. Jacob has 12 sons, but those 12 sons become the seed of the kingdom. And I want to share with you something that I think is really cool about Abraham. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 14, there has been a great war. In fact, it was actually the first world war when the kings of the east or the kings of the west got tired of paying tribute to the kings of the east, those that were over in Mesopotamia, Babylon, and all that. And so they decided they weren't going to send their tribute anymore. And so the kings of the east came and overtook them. And in the process of that, they sacked the city of Sodom, where Abraham's nephew Lot was residing, and they took Lot, and they made their way north to Damascus. Do you remember this story? And what does Abraham do? Abraham gathers the 318 men that are in his uh, household and he goes all the way to Dan and he captures them and he takes on these kings and he rescues Lot. And so now he's come back and Melchizedek comes out to greet him. And there's something that's going on there that I don't think we fully understand. 
these kings of the east conquered the kings of the west, but Abraham just conquered the kings of the east who conquered the kings of the west. Who's in charge? Abraham. Abraham has won the first world war. The king of Sodom comes out and says, just give me, you know, my people and you can keep all this. And what does Abraham say? No way. What is he doing? He is offering the spoils of the first world. I mean, if Abraham had wanted to push his, his presence, his success, he could have become the king of everything. And once the king of Sodom tries to offer him reward, what does Abraham say? No way. Interesting. Abraham was tempted with a kingdom that God had already promised him would be his. And so what did Abraham say? No. Very interesting. Because it was in that same area that one of his descendants would be tempted to take a kingdom that God had already said was his. I think you know who I'm talking about. So I want you to take note of this. God begins these, these patterns even in creation. We begin to see that that which is essentially one in origin and becomes two has a destiny to become one again. In fact, the only thing that you know, what, what do we say in the, in the marriage covenant ceremony? What God has joined together, let no man separate. When we separate, it's usually for evil. When God separates, it's because it's a part of his plan. And that plan is to ultimately set the stage for when everything comes back together as one. And of course, from three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit will come one kingdom that will exist forever. So I want to stress with you tonight how important it is that this proclamation of the gospel goes forth in these patterns. But I really want to highlight some things for you, a few scriptures. Matthew 24, verse 14, it says, And this gospel, this good news of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. This gospel of a kingdom? No. This gospel of the kingdom, if you're taking notes, capital T, capital H, capital E, underline it, score it, the kingdom. This gospel message of the kingdom will be preached, and then the end, the telos, the fulfillment, will come. When uh, I was in Bible college, I heard of some guys that wanted to form uh, a group. And uh, at the time, there was a Christian rock band that had taken a cool Greek name, Petra. I see enough of you are old enough to remember Petra. Man, they were really cool. So these guys in Bible college, they wanted to, uh, they thought they would form a group and they would take a really cool name. And they wanted to have a name. They kind of liked to preach. So they, they chose the Greek word for this idea of proclamation. 
And the Greek word was kerux. And we, they spelled it K-E-R-U-X. And everywhere they went, nobody knew how to pronounce it. It was the dumbest name in the history of dumb names. And Greg, I, I know we've heard of people that have done that, but uh, I don't know what we thought we were doing. Oh. So the next year we became the ambassadors because we got tired of going out to churches and having them say, and here's Kerux, and it was, it was a disaster. Why do I bring that up? Because the word Kerux is this idea, is the word, it shall be proclaimed. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached. The kingdom. I want you to get the emphasis on that. Acts 1.6, Greg just asked me about this before the service began. It's 40 days after the resurrection of Jesus. The Bible says for 40 days, I mean, can you imagine this? For 40 days, Jesus is ministering, resurrected. I mean, there can be no mundane day when you're sitting across from a man that you watched die. I mean, I don't think the master ever had to shush any of them. They, had his, they were focused on what he was saying. And what does the Bible say he taught them? For 40 days, he taught them about the kingdom of God. Now, I want you to think for just a minute. How is it that Jesus could spend 40 days with his disciples after being resurrected of all the things he could have talked about, what did he teach? The kingdom of God. Look, listen to what they, what they asked. So when they had come together, they began asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Not a kingdom the kingdom. Now we'll get to this later on in the week, but uh, there was a time, and I've heard many preachers say it, and I'm probably guilty of it, who thought, oh, those poor dumb disciples. They just don't get it. There is no kingdom. Folks, when we get to glory... If there's really any justice in the world, Peter and the rest of the gang should be allowed to stand at the gate and make every preacher apologize for the ridiculously dumb things we said about them. It just kills me when I hear preachers, oh, poor, dumb, out of control Peter. You know, if you believe in the resurrection, you're going to stand face to face with old poor, dumb Peter. And uh, I'm pretty sure he was 10 times the man any of us ever thought about being. Amen. And I don't want to have to look him in the eye and go, yeah, about that time that I got all wound up and, you know, was trying to make myself look better at your expense. Yeah, I'm, no. If there's anybody that's been dumb, it's been us. Because we have somehow been taught to accept a belief that after 40 days of being taught the kingdom of, I guess I'm going to do it now, 40 days about the kingdom of God, when they ask about the kingdom of God, what does Jesus say? It's not for you to know the times or the epics. Now, if, if there is no kingdom, Jesus just lied to his disciples. 
because he very clearly says, yes, there is a coming kingdom. But that's not where your focus is right now. The kingdom to Israel. This gets a little uncomfortable. This is why, remember, I said, you know, I had to go back and I've got it. And we're going to talk about this, okay? Okay, but, but I'm not Jewish. I'm not part of Israel. We're going we're to handle who are the people of the kingdom. I want to show you a passage that was really special to Greg and I one time in, in Israel. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel is prophesying, and he's asking, God tells Ezekiel, that he wants him to do a thing. It's called a prophet of paradigm. It's when, when the prophecy that the prophet is going to share is not only proclaimed, it is acted out. It's demonstrated. And so this is what the word of the Lord says in Exodus 37, 15 through 28. He says, the word of the Lord came to me saying, now you son of man, take for yourself one stick and write on it for Judah and for the son's and for the sons of Israel, his companions, then take another stick and write on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and the house of Israel, uh, his companions, then put them together for yourself, one to another into one stick, so that they may become one in your hand. So we've got the, this imagery of two coming together as one. And when the sons of your people ask you, saying, will you not declare to us what you mean by these? Because when a prophet starts doing something like that, they, they know they're not just playing with sticks. It's a prophetic drama that they are doing to get the people's attention. And so they say, what is, will you not declare to us what you mean by these? When they do that, God says, say to them, this is what the Lord God says. Behold, I am going to take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel. Let me just stop right there. He's talking about the ten northern tribes of Israel that had been scattered a couple hundred years before Judah went into her first exile. He says, Behold, I am going to take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will put them with it, with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they will be one in my hand, God's hand. The sticks on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes. Meaning you're going to act out this one, this one becoming two becoming one equation. And say to them, this is what the Lord God says. Behold, I'm going to take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone, and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king will be over them, and they will no longer be two nations and no longer be divided into two kingdoms. Are you, are you listening, church? Do you understand what he's saying? Israel has a destiny, they were one, they became two, and God says there's going to come a time when by his hand, he is going to make them one again. It goes on, he says, they will no longer defile themselves with their idols and with their detestable things or with any of their offenses, but I will rescue them from all of their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they will be my people, and I will be their God. That phrase is a, is a repeating prophetic terminology. And verse 24 says, and my servant David will be king over them. If you want to know where the resurrection is prophesied in the Old Testament, 
Underline Ezekiel 15, verse 24. How can David be the king over them if David's long since dead? And my servant David will be king over them, and they will have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes and follow them, and they will live on the land which I gave to my servant Jacob, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons forever. Everybody say the word forever. Is there anybody that needs an explanation of the meaning of that word? Forever. And my servant David will be their leader forever. And I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it will be an everlasting covenant with them. I will place them and multiply them and set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place will also be among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. One of the most difficult things for me to deal with was this simple pattern. Israel is the pattern of the kingdom, whether we like it or not. And before you get all upset and think, well, then where's my place in this? We'll get there. Because God has always had a place for the whole world in his kingdom. Man, we see this amazing thing play. And this was part of the thing that kind of uh, rattled my attention, got my attention the first time I was in Israel. I mean, forget about the 10 northern tribes coming back. I didn't have an explanation for what all these Jewish people were doing back in the land of Israel. Because I grew up believing and being taught that God had no more plan for Israel, that there was nothing left for him to do. It was all about us because we are now the kingdom of God. Not entirely false, not entirely true. Do you see it? One became two. Do you know why Adam became two? I think we're all old enough to handle this tonight so they could make babies, so they could procreate, so that life could be extended. Do you remember what Joseph said to his brothers? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. You say, Brent, when the kingdom of Israel was split, it was because the northern kingdoms were evil. Mm -hmm. Has God ever brought out good when someone else was doing evil? Yep. So why were they split? So that God could add you to the kingdom. Now we'll explain that further in the week. But there's always a reason when God separates and it's not for evil. This event can only occur when his kingdom brings all other kingdoms into submission. 
This event can only occur when the Redeemer King has brought back his people to establish his kingdom. I'll never forget getting off the plane in Israel uh, for the first time and, and the, the guy reading a prophecy about Jews coming back from all over the world, especially the land of the north, and there was another plane disembarking, another 747 at the same time, and it was 100% Jewish immigrants. Guess where they were from? Russia. Straight north of Israel. And that can only happen, this kingdom that he is bringing about can only happen when the exile comes to an end. That event is so important, it's even sung about. So I want to talk to you, remember, we're, we're talking about the ways the kingdom has been proclaimed. So the next point I want to talk to you about is what I'm going to refer to as the poetic songs of the kingdom, the poetic songs of the kingdom. Where is the first mention, Greg's not allowed to answer, I say that because he probably doesn't know and that way it keeps him from being embarrassed, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Where is the kingdom first mentioned in the Bible? Anybody know? It, it's really at a very special place. And, it, and what's really funny is that this is a question you can ask in Israel to kids that even attend secular school, and they will know the answer. Because it is connected to one of the most famous songs um, in Israel. It is the song that is sung by Moses and the children of Israel right after they pass through the waters of the Red Sea. And this, the children of Israel are, today are taught this, that this is the first mention. There are three poetic songs of the kingdom. I want to talk about this first one is what I'm going to call the passage song of Exodus. And the last line of the song that introduces the kingdom, chapter 15, verse 1 of Exodus says, Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song of the Lord. Now understand what has just happened. They have passed through the waters of the Red Sea, the baptism into Moses. They've come out on the other side. And then you jump down to the very last line, and it says this, Adonai yimlok le'olam va'ed. The Lord, Yahweh, shall reign forever and ever. Why were they singing that then? And why were they acknowledging the kingdom, the kingship of God? Because their king had just come down and rescued them. And how did he rescue them? Through the waters of the Red Sea. And when they came out on the other side, it was no longer just a family. It was a kingdom. We saw two people, two ladies today, pass through the waters, rescued by God, coming out on the other side, daughters of the king. That's the first song, the passage song of Exodus. The second song is what I call the prophetic song. Well, I don't call it this, but the prophetic song of the Messiah. There's a very interesting teaching. And by the way, I want to clarify something before I say anything more. You're going to hear me refer to the Jewish sages. 
And you may wonder, who am I talking about? I'm talking about rabbis that have lived since, you know, maybe the second, first century, all the way through the 1800s. And when we refer to the sages, these are the great rabbis who have, have written commentaries and have talked about these things. But there's a very ancient teaching among the Jewish sages that there are 10 songs uh, in Hebrew, 10 shirot, and that the 10th song is the song of the Messiah. And that it will be sung during the days of the Mashiach, the Messiah, after Messiah appears on the earth. Now, the first nine of these songs are referred to as shirah, which is the feminine form of the Hebrew word for song. But the 10th song, which is the song of the Messiah, which is to be sung at the time of Messiah, is not called a shirah because that's feminine. It's called a shir because the, masculine, the Messiah is masculine. And it's a song, we probably have written as many or more songs about this song, and we sing them every year in December. Let me read, read it to you, Isaiah chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But in the latter days, he will make it glorious. By the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You will multiply the nation. You will increase their joy. You'll rejoice. They will rejoice in your presence as with the joy of the harvest, as people rejoice when they divide the spoils. For you will break the yoke of their burden and the staff of on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every uh, boot or of the marching warrior in the roar of the battle and cloak rolled up in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. That's the song of the Messiah. Another part of that song is the first verse of Isaiah 26.1 that says, on that day... This song will be sung in the land of Judah. That day is the day that the Messiah comes and destroys the armies of Gog and Magog and brings an end to the exile. That is the day the Messiah of the Messiah's song. But if you're thinking with me tonight, you know that Luke already recorded that that song was referenced in the days of the birth of Messiah. The third song or poetic song of the kingdom are the Psalms themselves, and there's just way too many for us to cover. But Psalm 145 is, has some great lines 
about it, so I'm, just gonna, I'm not going to read all of it to you. Let me just read verse 1 to start off. It says, I will exalt you, O my God, the King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Verse 5 says, on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wonderful works, I will meditate. And then you jump down to verse 11. They will speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your might to make known to the sons of mankind your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Do you get the point that whenever we're singing about the kingdom, we're singing about a forever experience. There's so many more psalms that we could talk about. But again, I'm just trying to highlight how the kingdom has been proclaimed. And, and we'll get to the reason for that. The third thing I want to point out tonight is the preaching of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom. And I love the story. I, John the Baptist has be, I've just become kind of fascinated with John the Baptist. I think he is the biggest unsung hero uh, in the church. And we, you know, we kind of read right past him and get to Jesus, and then we jump over to Paul. But John the Baptist was it's just an amazing story. And sometimes we get confused about the kingdom because our translations aren't always sure how to handle the Greek language that is representing a Hebrew phrase. And so you, when you struggle with a Greek word that originally was in Hebrew, a Hebrew phrase that is now recorded in Greek, and then you try to bring it into English, you know what's the old phrase? Something gets lost in translation. And I want to show you one very special night. Matthew chapter 11, verse 12. If you've ever come across this verse, it's one of those ones you either, you either stop in your tracks and go, huh? Or you just jump over and keep going because it doesn't make any sense to you. Matthew eleven twelve in the New American Standard says, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. What? What, the church is an army and we're just supposed, we, we go, what? What, what, what? There's nothing about that sentence that sounds anything remotely close to what, you know, what about turn the other cheek? What about go the extra mile? How did we go from turn the other cheek, pray for those who hate you, love your enemies, to violently take the kingdom? Am I the only one that going, um, Jesus, did you just kind of go off the rails there for a minute? I mean, what, what, what do you mean by that? The King James Version says it almost exactly the same way, except it uses 16th century verbiage, it suffereth violence. And, violent, and the violent take it by force. Wait a minute, we're, we're the violent? What about blessed are the peacemakers? Come on now, you know, stop thinking about the game and look at me here. Does, it, does this make it sound anything remotely close to the rest of Jesus' teaching about the kingdom? 
No. Something's wrong. Now, the 1984 New International Version, God rest its soul, may it come back, it gets a little closer. It says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. Well, that sounds a little better. It sounds courageous, minus the violence. So what's going on in this passage? Since none of it sounds like anything Jesus has taught us about the kingdom. The dilemma is caused by not understanding how to translate a Greek word, uh, biadzo. And that's the root of this word. And this word, in most of our English translations, is translated in some fashion as suffering or experiencing violence. Uh, the same word is then used again in its noun form to describe the violent men who somehow violently lay claim to it. Now, we need to understand this verse because this is a very descriptive verse of the kingdom. And Jesus says this for a reason, and we need to know what he meant when he said it. So first of all, let's look at the context of what Jesus is talking about leading up to this verse. And again, we're talking about how the kingdom is proclaimed. And Jesus has just proclaimed something really confusing about the kingdom. We need to know what he said. So all of the context prior to this passage in Luke chapter or Matthew chapter 11 is the Lord talking about John the Baptist as the forerunner of the Messiah. And he, he makes three amazing statements about John. He says, one, he was more than a prophet. I mean, I thought being a prophet was pretty good, you know. And somehow, I mean, I know that, you know, the, the, the Lord gives these, some to be apostles and some to be teachers. I don't even know what this means. But Jesus is saying about John, he is more than a prophet. Now, I'm, I'm not a genius, but I think more than a prophet is higher than just a prophet. Amen? What I'm trying to say is that's an amazing thing for him to say about this man. Then he says that he is the fulfillment of the prophetic promise of the messenger that is promised in Malachi chapter 3, where Malachi says, Behold, I will send you the messenger before the great and glorious day of the Lord. And so Jesus is saying, hey, guys, if you want to understand who John is, He's the one Malachi was prophesying about. That's pretty impressive. And then he concludes by saying, of those born of women, there is none greater than John. That's pretty impressive. And what was John's job? To prepare the way for the proclamation of the kingdom. To prepare the way for the king. Then he makes this statement that we simply have wrestled with for many, many years. The answer, providentially, was found by a Jewish scholar. Um, how many of you watched when the uh, uh, United States Embassy was moved to Jerusalem? Do you see that? It's kind of fun. I don't remember which was the first group we had that was in the land right after that happened. But uh, we all wanted to go and take, have our picture taken underneath the seal of the United States. And, you know, and so the, the guards, the security guards, didn't know what was happening. 
A bus pulls up and suddenly all these American tourists come flooding out and the security comes rushing out, you know, like, hey, hey, what are you doing? Wait, what? And like, no, no, we're tourists, we just want to. So we all line up and get our picture taken under this, the plaque. And yes, there was also a Donald Trump thing there and someone's wanted to get our picture with that because we were happy that he did it and everything. That embassy is on a street named for the man who brought us the answer to the dilemma we're talking about tonight. He was a Jewish scholar. He was a language scholar, Hebrew and Greek, and his name was David Flusser. And uh, later in the week, I'm going to offer you a chance to buy a book that was written by a man named Dr. Brad Young, who is a man that I have studied under, and he studied under this man and worked with this man, David Flusser. He went looking for a better way to understand this pesky verb, biadzo, because it didn't make any sense. And so he went to the Greek Septuagint, and just make sure you understand what that is, about 200 to 250 years before Jesus, 72 scholars or 70, depending on which one you take, were sequestered in Alexandria, Egypt, and were forced to take the Torah, the, the Old Testament, and translate it into Greek. And so from that point on, we had both a Hebrew uh, Old Testament and we had a Greek Old Testament. And the Greek Old Testament we called the Septuagint after the number 70 uh, of the men who actually did the translation. Do you want to take a guess as to what the topic of the, the, the prophetic verse was that he found? So let me back up. So Dr. Flusser finds, goes to the Greek Septuagint, and he finds this verb, biadzo, and lo and behold, it's used in a prophetic passage in Micah chapter 2, verse 13. And guess what that passage is about? John the Baptist. Let me read it for you. Micah chapter 2, verse 13 says, The breaker goes up before them. They break out and pass through the gate and go out by it. So their king goes on before them, and the Lord capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, meaning Yahweh, at their head. Now, I won't bore you with too many more of the Greek details, but this prophecy is that the breaker, the forerunner, goes out before the king to break open the way for the king so the king can lead his people. It's about John the Baptist, who is, the, in Hebrew, is called the haporetz, the breaker who causes the kingdom to forcefully advance. That's what this word is actually about. Now, I, I love this word because it kind of sounds like a name my Down syndrome brother gave me many, many years ago. When I was in high school, my younger brother Chris was still not pronouncing my name correctly. For a long time, I was Bits, and then I was Bats, and I finally decided in high school, you've got to start pronouncing my name. So I sat Chris down and I said, now Chris, repeat after me, buh, he'd say buh. And I'd say rent, he'd say rent. And I said, now put it all together, poo rots, whoa. No, 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 no. Let's try again, buh, buh, rent, rent. Put it all together, Chris, poo rots. I thought, I went to my parents and said, he can't call me Poo Rots in front of my friends. <laughs> he did. 
It's stuck, and I'm known around the world today as Purats. I told you this morning of having the privilege and blessing of being in the home of a Chabad rabbi in Illinois, and uh, I told him this story. And there was a while when I, I went looking, I thought, surely maybe there's some Hebrew word Purats. Maybe there's some prophetic meaning to this. And I found a word that I kind of hoped it was. And as soon as I told the rabbi this story, he immediately said, yeah, poretz. The very word, the Hebrew form of the word we're talking about. The breaker. The one who makes the path so that the king. Listen, I, I'm not trying to put myself in this, uh, the shoes of John the Baptist, that's for sure. But I want to tell you something, church. There is no higher calling than to try to prepare the way for the king. Amen? To break open, to rescue hearts that need to be saved. So why am I taking time to share all this? Because how the kingdom of heaven, how did the kingdom of heaven forcefully advance by John through the preaching and proclamation of the kingdom of God. The call to repentance, that call we talked about this morning for God to bring the rain, R-E-I-N, to prepare us to receive the kingdom. I am 58 years old. I'm much younger than Greg. How is it with all the patterns, and believe me, we didn't even scratch the surface, and all the poetic songs laced throughout Scripture? How is it that John was sent to proclaim and prepare? How is it that the kingdom of God could be so important in its proclamation? And at 58 years old, I'm just now beginning to proclaim it. You see, I don't think the kingdom of God was simply supposed to be a synonym for Christians. I think there's more going on here. I told you this morning, I made reference to American tourists who everywhere they go, they think their inalienable rights follow them. We, American tourists, are known as being oblivious to what's going on around them. We laugh loudly. And other groups like, huh, Americans. We take our freedom with us. We don't even know we're being obnoxious. We're just being free. We expect everybody to protect our rights. I have to tell the groups that go to Israel, they expect... Bacon at breakfast, not happening. This isn't America. But wherever we go, we take that American identity with us. But there, we've come to a time where we are a people who need to understand our kingdom identity and not only begin to proclaim it, but to live it so the world can see it. Because it's time for the kingdom of heaven to begin forcefully advancing 
again in our lives. We've talked about John, but Jesus comes in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. Listen to how his ministry begins, remembering what we've talked about. Now, when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into the Galilee and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Interesting. This happened so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah would be filled, fulfilled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. So the people who were sitting in darkness have seen a great light and those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death upon them, the light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It has drawn near. Did you hear the song? The song of the Messiah. Matthew clearly believes the kingdom has come when he begins to write because he quotes the sheer Mashiach, the song of the Messiah, to be sung in his day. And where does Jesus go? He plants himself right in the middle of the land of Zebulun and Naphtali and begins to proclaim the kingdom of God has come. And this happens immediately after Satan has tempted Yeshua in almost the very same, in the very same region where Abraham said, I don't want the inheritance that you can give me. I want the kingdom that's already been promised to me. And Satan took Jesus And he tried to show him all the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus, if I can paraphrase, says, I don't need what you can give. Jesus already knew there's one kingdom. And it belongs to him. Amen? And like his great, 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 on and on grandfather Abraham, in that very same place, He resisted the temptation of the kingdom. Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, comes out and blesses Abraham, who was the first to be promised to inherit the kingdom. That's amazing to me. If you go to the very first sermon, remember thinking about how the kingdom is proclaimed. Jesus goes up and sits on a hill in Matthew chapter 5. And he opens his mouth, and I'm not going to read all of them, but listen to what he says. Remember that Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Now think, listen, as Yeshua blesses those who will listen. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Remember how I talked to you about that hermeneutic, about letting the plain sense make sense? Well, what do you think it means to inherit the earth? You see, when I was growing up, I was taught that inherit the earth doesn't mean inherit the earth. Maybe you were too. But what does inherit the earth mean? I'm going to go out on a crazy limb 
and suggest that inheriting the earth, are, are you taking notes? Get ready for this, means inherit the earth. That there is a place in the kingdom of God for this beautiful creation that he created for us. And it's not, you know, I grew up thinking, well, he's just going to come and, and blow this place apart and we're going off to, uh, you know, what I used to call Casper the Friendly Ghost Land, you know, heaven disembodied spirits trying to figure out if we're going to recognize each other. When I was a kid, we're going to be see-through spirits. How am I going to recognize you? There's no wonder our kids don't get fired up about going to heaven. I'm sorry, the way we teach it, the way we preach it is just boring. But you teach them the kingdom of God and things are going to change. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, even as Adam and Eve saw God when he would come and walk with them in the cool day. Is this beginning to make sense? Listen to the blessings of the real Melchizedek, the king of righteousness. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Revelation 21, 7, he who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. Blessed are those who have been persecuted, Jesus says, for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Are, are you hearing the words of Jesus? I'm, I'm not trying to overemphasize something. I'm trying to suggest we have underemphasized something so much that we have reduced it to nothing more than a synonym for going to church on Sunday. We have sold the kingdom of God so far short of its hope, its power, its glory in our lives. Now there's, that's the first part of the sermon. That's the kingdom prophetic blessing. The second part, I would call the kingdom passport. And this is where it gets weird. I've, I've got three more pages. Lord, send the rain. Let Mahomes not be able to get his shoes tied or something. But sometimes there's other passages that cause us to go, What? Because we're saved by grace, amen? Come on, amen? amen? Saved by grace. And then Jesus sits on that mountain and says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That and your vaccination card. <laughs> I call this the kingdom passport. And I want to tell you something. That's a pretty big price tag. You shall not pass unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. I don't know about you, but I would kind of like to know what he's talking about. Because if my, if my righteousness has to be better than the Pharisees who dotted every I and crossed every T, I mean, and then I'm like, but Lord, we're saved by grace. This kind of sounds like works righteousness. You can't get in without your passport. So you better know what the righteousness is he's talking about. Can I sidebar for just a minute? And, I, and this is where I wish I had screens so that I could, you're going to have to see this in your mind eye. This will help you understand what righteousness is. Have you ever noticed that in the New Testament, there are two groups 
that are always paired in contrast to each other. It's something Jewish, it's, it's a juxtaposition. Have you ever noticed that it's never just the tax collectors, it's the tax collectors and sinners, right? Have you seen that? Tax collectors, okay. And then it's always the scribes and the Pharisees. Am I right? And they're always juxtaposed to the tax collectors and the sinners. This is going to help you understand the righteousness he's looking for. They're opposites of each other. What does a tax collector do? He takes. The Pharisees prided themselves as being the best of the best givers of charity, which is the righteousness Jesus is talking about. When he says your righteousness has to be better than theirs, how can you be better than a group of people who tithe their salt and pepper? Oh, I've got my salt and pepper. 10% goes unto the Lord. Chop up my pepper. 10%. Mint and cumin. I mean, how many of you have tithed your, tithed your salt and pepper? Yeah, you're not getting in. <laughs> That's extreme. These guys thought they were the ultimate givers. And so suddenly you have this juxtaposition between the, the worst of the worst takers and the people who thought they were the best of the best givers. Then you have the sinners. Well, what's a sinner? It's a lawbreaker. Well, where did they learn about sin? In the Torah. These are the people that are experts in breaking the law and sinning. Who are the scribes? <laughs> the lawyers. What's the first part of that word? Law. They are the experts in the law. And Jesus constantly juxtaposes these two, the worst of the worst takers, the worst of the worst sinners, which with the people who think they're the smartest you know, keepers of God's word and the best givers of righteousness. And who ends up listening and finding the kingdom. Is it them? No. Do you, do you understand what's happening here? Now you can begin to understand the biblical definition of righteousness as Jesus was using it. You see, righteousness is the manifestation of understanding the character of God. It is God's character that he always gives. And if you want to find a path to, to moving into the power of the Spirit of God in your life, stop taking and start giving and watch what happens. That is a righteousness for God so loved the world that he gave. That's the righteousness of God. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. I give it freely. Jesus goes to heaven. I'm getting ahead of myself in my series. And what does he do? He gives the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within us. And what do we do? We take. If we're a manifestation of those three, what should our righteousness look like? We give. Our money, 
our lives. Our, this is, are, are you understanding? This, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says, don't do your acts of righteousness to be seen in men. What's he talking about? Go look at it. Giving. That's the kingdom passport. Remember Zacchaeus? Repentance came to his house, and what do you say? If I've wronged anybody, what am I going to do? I'm going to give back four times. Yeshua goes on to preach and teach about how to live with one another in grace and righteousness. He teaches his disciples how to pray. And are you at all surprised at this point, what is the primary focus of his prayer? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. The way you give from heaven, may I be a giver like you. Again, we're focusing on how the kingdom is proclaimed. I've got one last point. It's the parables of the kingdom. Yeshua uses parables. Use of parables is almost exclusively to teach about the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 13, the Bible says that because people were pressing in around him, Near to the shores, he got into a boat and set out from the shore so he could teach uh, from the Galilee. That's really interesting. The, 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 the Sea of Galilee has three names. The first is Sea of Tiberias, the Galilee, but its Hebrew name is the Kinneret, from the Hebrew word Kinor. Listen to Psalm 49. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world. By the way, why would he say that if he doesn't have a plan for you? Both low and high, rich and poor together, my mouth will speak wisdom, and the meditation of my heart will be understanding. I will incline my ear to a mashal, a proverb, which is a parable. I will express my riddle or my parable upon the kinor. Jesus fulfilled that literally, sitting on the kinneret, because the lake is in the shape of the biblical harp. As I said, at this point, Jesus, that is at this moment that Jesus begins to teach in parables. And before we understand that, remember what John says in the beginning of his gospel. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and tabernacled and dwelt among us. Now go to Luke chapter 8, where Jesus begins his kingdom parable teaching. Because I want to show you something that is amazing. Luke 8, verse 4 says, When a large crowd was coming together, and those from various cities were journeying to him, he spoke by way of a parable. Well, what is a parable? A parable comes from a Greek word, and many Greek words are two words put together. The first word, para, is a Greek preposition. And it means alongside. The Greek word for the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, is the one who comes alongside us, who's with us. And so the first word of a parable is to come alongside or be with. The second part, the, the part where we get the uh, able, comes from the Greek word balo, which means I throw or I cast. So a parable, by definition, is to come alongside or to be with someone and to cast something. That is what a parable is. That is what a parable does. Now watch the genius of God at work in how he proclaims the kingdom through the parable. 
You see, the very, the very definition of a parable, he takes it and he personifies it with the very best picture of what a parable, do you remember what the parable does? He comes alongside and what does he do? He cast. The sower went out to sow his seed. Are you with me? What does the sower do? He comes to scatter the seed. And he sowed and some fell on the road and it was trampled underfoot. And I'll skip through some of this. You know, it gets eaten up and all the different things. And then he says, he who has an ear, let him hear. So the sower is the perfect personification of the definition of how a parable works. Isn't that amazing? The sow, I mean, if you know, well, what's a parable? It's a way that you sow. The, remember, we're talking about how God brings the kingdom message. And Jesus starts teaching in parables. The sower will sow the seed. The word, Yeshua, will come and, uh, and re, some will receive it and some will not. And Yeshua goes on to help uh, his mathematicians, his disciples, to add it all up. Now his disciples began asking him what the parable meant. And he said, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But to the rest they are told in parables so that while seeing they may not see and while hearing they may not he understand. Man, God's disciples have been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom. But wait a minute. Does Jesus not want the rest to understand? Of course he wants to understand. But the parable exposes those who are capable of receiving the kingdom word. He says, now this is the parable. The seed is the word of God. And those, who, those beside the road are the ones who have heard. And then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart so that they will not believe and be saved. And then he goes on and talks about the rocky ground. But I want to focus on verse 12 because you know the parable. Folks, please understand this. The kingdom of God, Malkut HaShemayim, the kingdom of heaven, is birthed in the hearts of those who have received the word of God who came and dwelt among us, we have received the word. The sower perfectly personifies the definition of a parable, the one who comes alongside and casts the seed, the word of God, into our hearts. The kingdom is taught in parables because lo and behold, the kingdom is like a parable. If you want to understand how the kingdom of God takes root, you have to understand that it's a parable. You have to understand it begins not with an event, not with, with some futuristic thing. It happens when the word of God is sown into your heart and you receive that word. Amen? But beware, you have an enemy. There's another king. There's another kingdom. And so the Bible says that the devil comes to steal and to take it away from us. Anybody speak Spanish in here tonight? Anybody? What is the Spanish word for devil? Diablo. Diablo. From the Greek, diabolos. Another one of those Greek words that takes a preposition, dia, 
and pairs it with the noun form of balo. Remember what balo is? I cast or I throw. But the preposition is different. It's not para who comes alongside, who is with us. It's dia, which means through. Which means the devil comes to pierce the heart, to steal and destroy the word of God which was planted in us. Isn't that amazing? Jesus, I always used to tell my church, pay attention to how the story's told. The genius of God's word. He's proclaiming a kingdom. Well, I'm going to use a method of teaching. Oh, by the way, I'm going to use a method of teaching and I'm going to personify that method of teaching with the best person I could use to personify the meaning of the message of the parable. And oh, by the way, the person in the message actually look and function exactly the way the kingdom of God does. It begins with the word proclaimed in you, the proclamation of the good news of the kingdom of God. Are you paying attention to how the story is told? Man, I, this, gets, I just, this gets me fired up. From beginning to end, and we have barely scratched the surface, the kingdom of God was begun in the heart of God. Where do you think it begins in you? It begins when his will and his word takes root in your heart and you become a living breathing parable you become a manifestation of the kingdom of God I don't know about you but that blows my mind because it means that what I'm called to is more than just identifying with a religion. It is more than just identifying with a set of rules and morality. It means I am a citizen that what has been birthed in my heart began in his, and now I have full access to the pleasure, the priority, the provision, and everything that it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. It is time For the kingdom people to start believing in and walking out the kingdom pattern. Do you understand? You are called to be the kingdom pattern. You are called to be the sower. You are called to be the receiver of the word. It's time for the kingdom people to begin to break out with the kingdom proclamation and protect ourselves from the thief. It's time to forcefully advance the gospel of the kingdom, to break people out of bondage. And have you ever seen our culture in more bondage than what it is right now? We are addicted to more. It used to be when you talked about addiction, you were talking about something in a bottle or something injected into your arm. We are addicted to technology. We are addicted to drugs. We are addicted to alcohol. We're addicted to pettiness. We're addicted to our own sorrow, our woundedness. We are addicted to selfishness. And the kingdom of God does not show up in power to serve selfishness. It shows up to manifest righteousness. That's what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. It's time for the kingdom people to be sowers who sow the word of God into receptive hearts and fight for the souls of men. 
I'm not saying be violent, but it's time for some breakers to stand up. It's time for some young men and women and old men and women to remember who they are in Jesus. It's time for you to be the living parable, the personification of the one who received the kingdom. It's time for us to stop singing songs about the kingdom of God. It's time to start being citizens of the kingdom of God. He has all these amazing ways that he has proclaimed it. He patterned it. He sang it. He preached it. He modeled it. And he sowed it into our life. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Amen? Amen. Thank you. I want to thank you for coming out tonight, and I want to pray one more time for us before we wrap up here, and my hope is that uh, tomorrow night you'll come back, because what will happen is every one of these nights sort of builds, and I think as you put all of this together, uh, by the time we get to the end, I think you're going to have, as I said at the beginning, I think you're going to have this panoramic picture of the kingdom of God that you will get no other way. We, we are a generation of people who think in terms of sound bites. And if it can't be said in six seconds or less, we tune out. Um, we tune out to our own disadvantage uh, because we have a God who's brilliant. And I think part of what you'll see as we go at this is just how brilliant our God is. And uh, So we're going to bow our heads now and pray. If you have, I uh, want to chat with Brent a little bit afterwards. We'll hang around here for a little bit. Uh, I just want to, he mentioned this, I have to say this because it just, it seems appropriate tonight. <clears throat> he made the point that, you know, there, you know, there's, you know, the, the parable, the, the parable, you know, the, the Holy Spirit that, that comes along the paraclete, the one who comes alongside. And then you have Diablos on the other side, who's kind of got a whole different sort of angle on this. And you, so there's competition in all of this. And is it not interesting in the, the last couple of years, have you noticed National Football League, what are they, what is the Chiefs referred to? The Chiefs kingdom. Have you noticed that? I mean, this is, this is not the Chiefs. No diss on the Chiefs. You'll find that if you went to Buffalo, uh, beat the Bills kingdom. And if you went to the Cowboys in Dallas, the Cowboys kingdom. And on and on and on, we will see this. It's representative of, of our world is made up of kingdoms. And part of what we've got to do is move beyond all of these little kingdoms and come into submission to the kingdom, the kingdom. And um, because that's what's coming. That's what's coming. So uh, let's bow our heads. We'll pray. Thank you for joining us online or here in person. And then uh, we'll hang around for a little bit for those of you who want to chat. Father, we thank you that your kingdom is coming. And as we explore that and come to understand what that even means, we just continue to pray and ask that you would open our minds, our hearts, our eyes.
to what you've said in your word. Give us minds to perceive and um, hearts to receive what you're trying to communicate to us. Father, would you continue to speak to us even tonight as we, we rest or uh, tomorrow as we, we work or go about the various things we'll be doing. Just may the things we've talked about tonight continue to echo in our minds. And would you help, uh, help your kingdom to more fully form in us and more fully flow through us. And we'll, uh, we'll rejoice to be your servants. Go with us now, Lord. We lift this prayer.